Romans 8, 26, Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It speaks of the Father in verse 27. It says that he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I could have picked a number of different passages to open up this message on what Paul teaches about the Holy Spirit, but I chose this one because I felt like it was important for me to reveal in the very opening text that the Holy Spirit is interactive with you and he's interactive with me. That literally, he's not a force from God. He's not a power surge from heaven. That he is, impossible as it is to fully fathom, he is a personhood. He is a person. He is a rational being. He is supernatural. He is 100% God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God. Three persons, one God. Say, explain that, Jeff. I can't, nor can you. But I can believe it. It is what the Scripture teaches. And to the degree that we look and we can honor God the Father all throughout the Old Testament, and we see Him in His power, we see Him in His glory, we see Him in His revelation and His wisdom, we see Him at times in His wrath and His anger, We see him in restoration and mercy and compassion and kindness and honor and favor. We see him in grace. We see God the Father. We say, hallelujah, I want to know God more. And then we get to the Gospels and we see Jesus. And we see him in a way that that doesn't contradict God the Father, but only seeks to just adorn our understanding of God even greater. Because we see Jesus speaking and teaching. We see him eating We see him resting. We see him get wearied. We see him sleep. But we also see him as sovereign over nature. He walked on water. He calmed seas. He cursed a fig tree and it it died. And he raised the dead. And we see Jesus in in ways that are stupendous and miraculous and amazing. And they they make our heart just kind of surge towards him and saying, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And we see that in the Gospels. And then we turn to the book of Acts, and Jesus ascends back to heaven. God the Father isn't on earth, and God the Son isn't on earth. It is God the Spirit who comes in Acts chapter 2 in unmistakable fashion, and tongues of fire and mighty rushing wind, and then supernatural miracles and the powerful proclamation of the gospel comes, and that is all under the orchestration of God the Spirit. Yet if I'm being candid, I will say that it has not been my experience that people are as comfortable as saying, oh, I want God, oh, I want Jesus. I don't hear as many people as seamlessly saying, oh, I want the Spirit. There is an awkwardness in many places in the body of Christ because people have been taught that the Holy Spirit is something less than who he actually is. Something less than divine, holy, sovereign, eternal God. And so he is approached in our day by many with tentativeness, 
with awkwardness, with hesitancy. Say, Jeff, how do, how do, you, how do you know that? Well, I've, I've experienced it. If I pray from the pulpit, oh, God the Father, help us today. God the Father, we worship you. God the Father, we honor you and we praise you. And I do the same exact thing with God the Son. Nobody bats an eye. But when you start saying, God the Spirit, we worship you. We love you. We adore you. We surrender to your Lordship. We bow before you. People are like, hold on a second. The reality is, somebody asked me one time, Jeff, why do you pray to God the Spirit? And I I said, hmm because he's God there is no complexity to it we we get to pray to the Holy Spirit and one of the tactics of the enemy is clearly to keep the bride of Christ the church awkward about the Holy Spirit do you know why he wants to do that because the Holy Spirit is God in us he is the one who is interactive with us listen Jesus is sitting bodily in a resurrected bottle on the throne in heaven. Strictly speaking, Jesus is not inhabiting the earth. Jesus is inhabiting his throne in heaven. There's no vacancy there. Doesn't mean that Jesus can't manifest and can't appear, but truly speaking, God the Father and God the Son are in heaven. God the Spirit is on earth. So he's the one we need to get to know Say, well, Jeff, is he different than God the Father, God the Son? No, he's not different, but when I'm saying getting to know, I'm not saying get to know about, I'm saying getting to know him interactively, personally, relationally, cooperatively. That's what the Lord is wanting to do. And so I'm going to try to help us a little bit this morning, and I am going to talk about what Paul teaches about the Holy Spirit, but not so you can have more information. I'm not against doctrine, obviously. I'm not against theology, obviously. But what I'm saying is this. It's a means unto an end. Theology is not an end of itself. Theology, the words, the logos, theos, logos, the words of God. Theology is meant to bring us to personal experience with this God of the Bible. And so when we talk about theology and talk about doctrine, it's not so we can say just amen, It's so we can say, oh, I'm knowing more about him. And the more I know about him, the more I want him. The more I want to be with him, the deeper I want to go with him, the longer I want to stay with him. And the glorious thing is, is there's not a single one of us that have maxed out that personal interaction with the Lord. And so there's room to grow. Let me give you this. First and foremost, very simply, Holy Spirit leads Romans 8.14, we're going to come back to the verses I read in a few moments, Lord willing, but I want to give you a few other things first. Romans 8.14, the Holy Spirit leads, listen to this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All sons, sons and daughters, all the children of God are being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not an option. This is not like top-tier Christianity where everybody else is just kind of in this other category, but if you really want to go somewhere with the Lord, step it up a notch and be led by the Holy Spirit, the reality is is that Paul's understanding is that every single believer is being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't say anything about how we're following, but it does say that he is always leading us. Now, How many of you understand that in that kind of fellowship and leadership uh, relation that that the one following has a say-so in how far that relationship goes? So in other words, he's leading, are we listening? He's leading, are we agreeing? 
He's leading, are we obeying? He's leading, are we following? Because the reality is, is that the Holy Spirit is constantly seeking to lead the sons and the daughters of God. What does that look like? What does that Christian's life look like who is saying yes to the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, we're not following common sense through life. We're not bowing to cultural standards in life. We learn to wait on gaining heaven's discernment, especially about matters that are important in life. We don't just go with our gut, so to speak. Those that are being led by the Holy Spirit, they actually ask for guidance. And as they do, because they're being led by the Holy Spirit, they're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Sometimes life gets difficult and faith collides with this thing called reality, but those that are being led by the Holy Spirit do not bow down to the facts unless they submit those facts to the Lord. And the Lord says, go with what's happening. The reality is, as we go further, we hear his voice because he's leading us. He speaks to us. And he sometimes and often, anytime you want to hear the voice of God, open your Bible. Every, everywhere you read, anytime you open it, wherever you are, if you want to hear the voice of God, open your Bible. Because the words therein are the voice, the logos of God. But that is not the only way that the Holy Spirit speaks because not every issue in life is addressed with a Bible verse. I can, I've told this story before, but it just bears repeating. When Amy and I were, were dating, I think they call it courting now, whatever it is, when we were not yet married, but she was deeply in love with me. Um, <laughs> when we were approaching that point, I remember I thought she was the one. I was attracted to her. I respected her. I loved how she loved the Lord, and we were growing in affection towards each other, but we were being very intentional about it keeping strong barriers and, and things so we didn't slip into anything that was out of God's will. But I'll never forget bowing down at an altar and I was just waiting for God to say green light on this thing, but he had not given it to me yet. And there were times where I was saying, Lord, is it Amy? There were other times saying, Lord, it is Amy. I just need you to sign off on it. There are other times where I just didn't know. And I wasn't talking to a lot of people about it, but I was talking to the Lord. And I remember going down and kneeling at an altar at our church in Duluth at that time. And I remember hearing the Lord, hearing the Holy Spirit, not in the ear, but in the internal registry. I heard him say, you don't need to pray about it anymore. And I, listen, she had a ring three days later, amen. That's just the way it worked. But listen, here's the thing. There wasn't a Bible verse that said, Jeff, ask Amy to marry you. So what did I need? I needed the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And there's so many things like that in life. And typically we are, our default is to just kind of go with our instinct or go with common sense or look at the facts or listen to other people or, or just to hang in the balance and, and that horrible place of the paralysis of analysis where you can't make a decision because you don't know what to do. Listen, the Holy Spirit leads. He will lead you. The, oftentimes the question is, do we want to wait long enough to hear what he's saying? Because me and you, we're in the microwave generation. You pop it in, you press a button, you get a meal out. That's not the way it works in the economy of God. That's not the way it works with you and the Holy Spirit. Because more important to the Holy Spirit than you getting your answer is you getting to know him. And so there's a process that he leads us. And listen, we can learn and we gain experience and we begin to understand his heart. There are some things I don't pray about. If I go shopping in the grocery aisle, I don't kneel down at aisle 14 and say, Lord, is it the Wheaties or is it the Cocoa Puffs? Which one? Come, Holy Spirit. 
There's just some things I don't pray about because we don't need specific leadership on certain things. It's nice if he gives it, but there are other times where I don't want to move an inch before I know what he's saying. And friends, I'm going to tell you, we're getting into the days where things are getting more and more difficult to discern truth from error. You've got so many voices speaking lies to you and speaking cultural norms into you and trying to identify you by a whole host of things. And we've got to be led by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, fortunately for us, he leads every single son and daughter of God. Before moving on, I'm just going to give you a piece of pastoral advice. If you are in a season or a spot in life and you would evaluate your heart, and you say, Jeff, I don't know if I've ever heard the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, put that on the top of your prayer list. On the top of your personal prayer list, put up there, Lord, I don't want to stop praying for this until I know that I can hear your voice. And I want to promise you something. You're going to get an answer to that prayer because you're not praying anything outside of his will. He wants you to hear his voice. Go on a little bit further with me. I'm going to do verses 15 and 16. These will be up on the screen. You won't have time to turn there. But the Holy Spirit assures Listen to what Paul says. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I love the reassuring ministry of the Holy Spirit. Don't raise your hand, but I, I would venture to say there have been moments, for those of you that are born again, there have been moments where you've said to yourself, man, I don't feel saved. I'm wondering if I am saved. Was I really saved? Am I really saved? How could I do that if I was saved? And, and how come I'm seeing all these saved people and they got this stuff in their life and I don't have any of that stuff? And there is this quandary and one of the places of attack so often of the enemy is he wants to paralyze us with fear and uncertainty about our relationship with God. So listen, objectively speaking, this is how you can know if you have a relationship with God, uh, how to know if you're saved, born again, justified, redeemed, however you want to term it, uh, term it. This is how you know. There are some objective things you need to know. It's the gospel. Uh, you and I were born sinners. It's not a healthy uh, or a happy little commentary, but it's the truth. We were born sinners, and by the time we were two years old, we weren't just sinners by nature. We were sinners by choice. You know you, you start recognizing your children are savages when they turn about two. Little, little savages in diapers. She, she's so cute and pretty and sweet on the front row, but when she was two, she's a little savage. I mean, she's just a nut. And why? Because the Bible says foolishness is bound in the heart of the child and the rod of correction has to drive it away. And so the, all of us are born that way. And so we're sinners by nature and sinners by choice, but hallelujah. The, the good news is, is that Jesus Christ came to earth to pay the penalty for our sins. Somebody's got to die for your sin. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. The Bible says that the payment for sin, the wage for sin is death. That's universal. Every single human being must have somebody to die for their sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross having no sin of his own. He paid for all the sin of those that would believe on him, paid for all of it. And the only other person that can pay for your sin is you. And you will be eternally paying, but never paid off. And so the reality is Jesus didn't want us to be separated from God, eternally paying for our sins. So he paid, them, paid for them for us. He died. He took our death. He took our sin, took our judgment, took our condemnation. 
And then he rose again from the dead on the third day and he triumphed over that. And he ascended back to heaven and he gave us the gospel. And the gospel says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you can come to that place of acknowledging that you're a sinner, a helpless sinner who needs an available savior and there's only one savior, it's Jesus Christ the Lord. And when you receive him, when you surrender to him, when you submit to him and say, Lord, I repent of my sin, forgive me and wash me, you are now the Lord of my life. The Bible says in that moment a transaction happens, that it's called justification. Everything that was messed up, wrong, and sinful about you is placed on Jesus on the cross. Everything that was holy and good and righteous about him is placed on your account. There is a divine swap that he takes all of your nasty and pays for it to the uttermost point of death and condemnation. He became a curse, and you become accepted in the beloved, become complete in Christ, become justified before God's holy throne. There is therefore now no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. But being who we are, we can sometimes lose our, our confidence in that transaction because... How many of you know when that transaction takes place, uh, you don't immediately have everything change about your life? The Bible says if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. That means we occasionally stumble, and the enemy likes to seize on that occasion to come and say, see, that was all fake down there at the church house. That was all fake when you prayed that prayer. It was all fake when you released yourself to Jesus. And he comes to bombard us, but hallelujah, the devil is a defeated foe. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And the Bible says here that he does not give us the spirit of slavery to where we fall back into fear. That listen, Paul said this, the Lord has not given us the spirit of fear. The apostle John said, perfect love cast out fear. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 2.15 that God delivers all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the shackles were broken off of us when we came to Jesus, that we're no longer slaves, but we have become a child of God. And the fear, that and when we sense that fear, and that, that it's, it's more than just being timid, it's dread. Satan's a spiritual terrorist that comes and he traffics in lies and fears and he comes with flaming arrows. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit living within us rises up. And this is the description, that he bears witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our human spirit that we are the children of God. You see, friends, we don't need to take a move in a second in the church today whether Jeff Lyle's saved. I love you. I don't care what your opinion is on my soul. You know why? It is settled. How do I know it? Not because I'm super Christian, but because the Holy Spirit in me says, Jeff, you belong to the Father. You're a child of God. That's why we don't have to live in fear and we don't have to live in slavery. Why? Because inwardly, one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is alive in us, that we are saved, is there's this longing for the Father. He says it here, we cry out by the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Many of you have heard this before, but for those who have it, that term in the Aramaic, that language that was spoken in Jesus' time and day by the Hebrews, the term Abba is a term that is parallel to us saying, Daddy, Papa. It is an intimate term of endearment. Religion says, Father. And if you dare, religion will never let you exhale, love gush, and just relate to him as Papa, Abba, Daddy. 
Religion will never let you do that, but the Holy Spirit will. The Holy Spirit will say, tell him what's on your heart, child of God. God is not some dignified diplomat in heaven that we need to behave around. That's not the primary nuance of God the Father. He's a father. Now, he'll wear your fanny out if you live in disruption and rebellion. I, pro I promise you that. But that's not the primary way that we approach him. We don't pro approach him as some member of parliament that we want to make sure we get all the rules right. We, we want to approach him with that heart cry because that's the Holy Spirit crying out. It's the Holy Spirit's cry within you. It's, it's not that you have permission to do it. It's you have to act in opposition to suppress that cry. That is his cry. He's crying out, Abba, Father. Jesus did. When Jesus prayed, he used that word. And, and the Holy Spirit is of the same nature and essence as God, as Jesus Christ. So you have him longing for that closeness to the Father through you. He's leading you. Friends, I would encourage you, ask God to sharpen your discernment of what the Holy Spirit's crying inside of you. You're, you're gonna recognize it the more you're in the word, you're gonna recognize it the more you're quiet, the more you press in intimately and personally, you're gonna realize he is leading you. Uh, there's a man in our church who's recently been born again and uh, he was delivered out of a, a lifestyle of bondage to alcohol. And he's been so encouraging lately. And he's come up to me the last three or four times I've seen him at church. First time I met the guy, I mean, I, I knew he was lost. I just, I, I felt for him. I felt the pain and the weight of his struggle. But then he got saved and, and God delivered him from the alcohol bondage and all that. And every time he sees me now, he's just gushing about what the Lord is speaking to him. And I thought, that's the way it's supposed to be. Listen, he doesn't have a, a degree in theology. He just has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to him and through him about Father's love for him. So let me go down a little bit further. Let's get to these couple of verses we opened up with. This is going to encourage you because some of you are in a really, really challenging season in life. Um, these verses, I'm just going to confess this, these verses have been very helpful to me over the past two weeks because of just... Um, a little struggle I'm going through and I, I realize maybe the Lord even allowed the struggle so I wouldn't just preach these verses theologically but I would preach them experientially so what are they well first of all the Holy Spirit helps us in our limitations Paul says likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and then he typifies some of those weaknesses as this for we don't know what to pray for as we ought or as we should but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I, I like the fact that my Bible just um, states it as a fact that there's times where, where Christians are going to experience their weakness. There's a popular line of theology that we need to pray against, to be honest with you, that literally tries to deny any weakness or struggle or suffering in the Christian's life. They, 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 they have a hyper view of God's grace to the extent that they say, no, all of that suffering, struggle, pain, it's all imaginary, it's not real, you're just not walking in grace. Um, there's a Greek word for that, it's called hogwash, amen? That's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. The Bible says we do have weaknesses, and the Spirit helps us. Now, I'm going to be very particular. 
It doesn't say Jesus helps us. I don't have any problems with us praying to Jesus and even saying that, but I'm, I'm going by what the verse says. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit within you, helps you. It's interactive. It's beyond just knowing something about him. Um, it is close contact, full contact faith. It is partnership. It is him saying, in essence, to you what Jesus said when Jesus was on earth. When Jesus was on earth, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's a picture of Jesus saying, let me get up underneath the burden that you're carrying, and I'm going to lighten that burden. And what I allow in your life when I'm helping you, it's going to be a light, uh, uh, easy yoke and a light burden. Um, the Spirit is saying the same thing here. He helps you in your weakness. Listen, God is not content to watch you from a distance. And let me tell you something. We tend to act independently from him when we are strong. I know, listen, I'm raining on all the parades and everything, but I'm just trying to meet you where you are, especially those of you that are struggle. If you don't believe me, King David, it's in the Bible. He said in the 119th Psalm, he said, it was good for me to be afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. So David was able to look at his troubles and say, I don't love the troubles, but it's healthy for me. Why? Because when we are afflicted, when we are struggling, when we are in trouble, when we are in pain, when we are confused, when we are beyond our resources and outside, we have met our limitations, when we are weak, it is then that we know our need for intimacy with the Lord. And so it is then that we are more easily prone to cry out, Abba, Father, or help me, Holy Spirit, or Jesus, come to my rescue. And so he helps us in our weakness. And, and specifically, Paul is, and this is the apostle Paul. I mean, the dude raised the dead. He got caught up to the third heaven in a vision. They stoned him to death outside the gates of Lystra. He got, back, got right back up, went and finished his sermon, and then left the city. I mean, he's a powerhouse. And he says, when we are weak, when we are weak, when we don't know what to pray, that literally the pressures of life and the discouragements and the pains, physical, emotional, mental, relational, otherwise, they can get so heavy that you run out of words. Or you can have prayed so often about something with no breakthrough on it that you just don't know what to pray anymore. It's like, Lord, you have heard me pray this prayer a hundred times. I, I don't have any more words. And there are times where the intensity of struggle can pressurize us so heavily that nothing articulate comes out. It's just groans that we utter. You can make that about tongues if you want to. I don't have a problem with that. I don't think that it's necessarily speaking specifically about that, but there are times where you can't pray in your native tongue because you don't have the vocabulary to process what's going on in your heart. And so praying in the spirit, praying in tongues is beautiful for times like that. But I actually think this speaks more of travail than it does tongues, where you are just getting so cooked by life. And the Bible says this, that's where the Holy Spirit comes to help you in your limitations. You all, I hope, know that this is not in the Bible. God will never lay anything on you that you can't handle. That is not in the Bible. It is actually contradictory to the Bible. God will most definitely lay upon you what you cannot handle. Why? Because he's not interested in you, you and I living independently of him. 
oh, I got this life, God. I don't, I, you won't put anything on me that I can't handle on my own. You go and help the people that are worse off. I, I got this. I know, that's a little silly, but the reality is, is he absolutely, he will let you encounter your weakness over and over again. Paul said, I want to fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, not just the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his suffering. And the Holy Spirit's with you. Listen, um, you don't have to articulate your prayer in 1611 King James English to God. The Holy Spirit can take a, a five-second groan and take it into the throne room and perfectly interpret it in the will of God. Matter of fact, that's the next, next part. The Holy Spirit thinks and communicates, Romans 8, 27. He who searches hearts, that's speaking of God the Father, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So let's, let's, let's link that back to what I was telling you in verse 26, one verse before. First of all, Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. He's not a surge of power. He's not something that comes from God. He is God, and he lives within you. And this verse alone teaches, verse 27 alone, teaches that the Holy Spirit has both an intellect, a mind, and verbalization or communication. So he's, he's not a thing. He's not an it. That old song, send it on down, Lord, send it on down. Lord, let the Holy Ghost come on down. He's not an it. Let's call him a him because he's a him. You say, well, Jeff, you're splitting hairs. Really, you want me to call you an it? No, it's, 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 we're going to honor him as God. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's a person. And so when we don't know how to pray, God within us takes the groanings, takes the, the spiritual utterances, and he takes them in perfect interpretation and intercedes for you in the will of God. Some of the safest prayers you will ever pray will be those prayers that you don't know what you're praying. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit's job to take them and put them before the throne. He said, Jeff, I don't quite understand why God is going before God and interceding for me, God to God. Well, let me tell you, there's one God, there's three persons. I can't explain it. I just believe what the Bible says. Matter of fact, it's, it's actually doubly good because the Bible also says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. You have the Son and the Spirit praying to the Father on your behalf. And this is the one that God is calling us to cooperate with, the one who loves us, the one who helps us in our limitations, the one who understands our weaknesses and interprets our groan and, and gives us assurance that we really do belong to God. And he cries out, Abba, Father, because he, he wants to use all of our faculties to, to express his love for the Father. And so we get in the midst of that and we find ourselves growing in worship. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's worshiping through our mouths, worshiping through our bodies, worshiping through our money, worshiping through our sacrifices, worshiping through us. Why? Because he longs to bring glory to the Father. And we get caught up in that holy process, and it's a, it's a glorious thing. Um, I'm, I'm almost done. <laughs> Somebody chuckled. I really am. I need to give you this. And I'm, I'm going to be so just firm on this. Believers partially determine their own level of interaction with the Holy Spirit. Some of you are waiting on God, and he's been waiting on you. Some of us in the body of Christ are not experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit 
because we're not cooperating with him at the level that he calls us to. Let me give you a couple of things here, three things. I'm going to give you three commands concerning your participation with the Holy Spirit. First of all, this is a command. Be continually filled with him. That is a command. It's not option B for the charismatics. The, the, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and the non-spirit-filled Methodists don't have to live. That's, it's, it's not the way it's framed up. It's to Christians, and it's a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And the Greek verb tense there is ongoingly filled. Be you being filled. Live in a state of being filled with the Spirit. Now listen, if it wasn't, if it didn't depend on us, it wouldn't be a command to us. And, and listen, there are things that we can do that welcome the filling of the Holy Spirit. And there are things that we can do that will cork the bottle completely. And so we have to recognize that it is possible... You're, you, I'm going to say this reverently. You're full of something. You're, I am too. We're always full of something. You are not an empty tank. Something is your fuel. Something is driving you. Something is filling up your mind, your wants, your heart, your calendar, your checkbook. Something is filling you up. There is no empty person out there. There are people that are empty of God, but there are no people that are empty of everything. And so the reality is, is that God commands me, I'll just speak for me, God commands me to intentionally live a life that is spirit-filled. And that's not code talk for praying in tongues. It is so much more than that. And so I'm just going to confess something you already know. I don't always do this. I don't always live spirit-filled. Matter of fact, there's been more times than I can number where I'm assuming I'm spirit-filled until I get into a situation where I don't have what I need. And then I'm thinking, ooh, I'm full of something, but it's not him. I don't know, I'm, I don't have the time or even the desire to give you five steps to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you this, it's connected to the Word of God in your life because you can't know the mind of the Holy Spirit apart from the Word of God. You might have a good guessing game going on. You might get it right sometimes, you might not. But if you really want to know the mind and the heart of God, you've got to be in the Word of God. And matter of fact, the same effects that come from being filled with the Spirit in the book of Colossians are the same effects that come from being filled with the Word. It's not the same thing, but they have the same effects, so they're interconnected. But listen, I don't get hung up on this. The Bible commands me to be filled with the Spirit. And so it is incumbent upon me to find out what that means and not to be content living without it. Typically what you'll find is when you're not full of the Spirit, you're full of you. And you're awesome, but you're not Him. You're okay in most situations, but there's coming a day, friends, where this will not be a luxury. And it was never meant to be. The second thing is this, don't grieve Him. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32. This, we grieve who he is, by the way. The Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And verse 31 and 32 are connected to it. I believe these are ways we grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander 
be put away from you along with all malice. Watch this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When we're talking about grieving who he is, most people would, would say, I, I think I grieve him if I commit moral failure. I'm sure it does grieve him. I, I, I probably grieve him if I lie. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm probably grieving him if I intentionally break the law. Yep. I, I grieve him when I'm not living by the Ten Commandments. Okay. But it's very interesting to me that in the context of grieving the spirit, that vertical relationship within you, Paul goes horizontal. Paul connects the grieving of the spirit with how we treat each other. And he says, are you bitter with somebody? Don't grieve the spirit. Are you continually angry with somebody? Don't grieve the spirit. Are you living in a constant state of wrath? Are you talking about people? Are you slandering? The word grieve in the Greek, do you know what it means? It means to hurt his feelings. It's amazing to me. God Almighty can be grieved. He can be hurt. And when we grieve who he is instead of being tenderhearted like he is with us and kind like he is to us and and forgiving like he always is to us, when we choose to operate in gossip or slander or malice or anger or envy or strife, the Holy Spirit says, oh, that hurts. There's a reason why people that operate in those things at best have intermittent joy and peace because they're not thinking that what they're doing with others is actually hurting their relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so they lose their sense of his voice. They lose their sense of his presence. They don't hear him. They don't feel him. And it very rarely occurs to most of us until we read it in Scripture, plain as day, that it's because our, ver- or, excuse me, our horizontal relationships are inconsistent with who he is with us vertically. And so the third one is don't quench him. So be filled with him. Don't grieve him. And don't quench him. And quenching him is not about who he is. It's about what he does. To quench something, the word literally in the Greek is used to talk about putting out a fire. And it it, it talks about 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, 18, 19. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. And so when we're talking about living a life filled with the spirit, undeniably, inevitably, it comes to this issue of power. Can, can I give you this? This isn't Yahoo moments right here in this message because this is where we need to consider our own lives, consider our church, consider the ministries that we have. I want the fire of God on who I am and what I do. I want God's fire. I, I, listen, my own giftedness is woefully inadequate. It's pitiful. It's an imposter. My own giftedness. My own skills, my own experience, my own resources, they're they're a mockery when compared to what the Lord wants to do with Holy Spirit fire in our generation. And if we look at the church as a whole in the West, man, there's a lot of smoke. There's a lot of, of, of neon. 
but I don't see a lot of fire. And I personally feel grieved in my heart at times. I know when I've quenched him. But ministry does nothing to sanctify a person, by the way. Matter of fact, you get up here and you are well aware whether or not you have quenched the spirit. I can't, I, I can't get up here fighting with my wife. I, Amy and I, we, you know, we, we keep very short accounts. If we get sideways with each other, we get it right as soon as we can. But man, God help me if I ever tried to get up here and fake it like I'm in the spirit and I'm upset with her, she's upset with me. She's sitting on the front row and she's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> You're pretending pretty good up there, Jeff. <laughs> but more important than, than her knowing it, I don't want him to know it. I, listen, some of you are incredibly gifted. Some of you have open doors. Some of you have experienced the power of God in your life. And this is not condemnation. This is an opportunity to do a diagnostic on your life and heart. Has the flame gone away? Has the power left? Well, don't chalk it up to a sovereign God. Don't just say, well, he'll send it when he's ready. No, no, my friends, listen. It could be that we quench the spirit in ways that we have learned to live with because we have so many other things to prop us up as if we are operating in the power of God. Yeah, Sandra, I'm trying to preach that, but I can tell it's going over like a, like a man in a skirt. Here we go. It is St. Patrick's Day. That's right. Those are my people, the motherland, the Irish. Amen. I'm one-third leprechaun. You can see my uncle on the Lucky Charms box. Last thing, and I'm going to be done. Worship team, y'all can come on out. And this is a series of messages in and of itself, but I'm just going to say that the Holy Spirit imparts spiritual gifts. They're still active. Supernatural spiritual gifts, all of it, still available, all of it, all of it. If you were taught otherwise, you were taught like I was, maybe you were even taught by me at some point in my cessationist state. The Holy Spirit gifts are completely 100% available. There is not a single verse in the Bible anywhere not one verse that says that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have stopped today. Not one verse. Not a single verse. The whole doctrine of cessationism is built and hung on the flimsy nail of a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 13. That's it. Uh, 12. 12, 13, and 14. A couple of verses. Is it any wonder that the devil wants Christians to believe that we don't have access to the gifts anymore? You know why? Because if he can convince a multitude of Christians that there is no spiritual gifting available, then what it boils down to is, but we better stoke up on our, our own strength. We, we, better, we, better in, in, we better evolve in our own power. We got to get more creative. We got to get more ingenious. We got to get stronger. We got to get better. We got to get more streamlined. We got to work harder and toil more and strive with more vigor than we ever had before because those gifts aren't available. And he tries to get us to compensate in the power of the flesh what the Lord provides in the spirit. I didn't even read the verses, but it's 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. And, and it goes out of its way. Paul goes out of his way to teach us. The Holy Spirit has the gifts, gives the gifts to whom he wants to have the gifts for the purpose for the gifts at the time that those gifts must be used. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, you're going to find undoubtedly over and over again that God wants us to know the Holy Spirit releases gifts to Christians 
If you are a Christian, if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit and he brought gifts with him that you are actually gifted, supernaturally endowed with powers that are other than your natural gifts and abilities. And the question is, what are we doing with them? What are we doing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit? We'll save the answer to that for another time, but I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. The whole theme of this message is to layer you for 45 to 55 minutes, however long I preach, to layer you with the understanding that he's interactive. The Holy Spirit is interactive. He's not at a distance. He's not just hanging out with the super impressive Christians. He's in you, God in you, the Holy Spirit in you. And this is what I'd love for you to do today. If you're, if you're hungering for that, come and get low before him. Come and say, Lord, I erase my history with you. I'm not worried about then. I want to begin fresh and new now. I want what you have for me. You want me to pray in tongues, I'll pray in tongues. You want me to prophesy, I'll prophesy. You want me to go to the nations with words of knowledge and healing and the gift of faith, I'll do all of that. Lord, you want me to be gifted in giving? That's one of the charismata in Romans chapter 14. Then I will be gifted in giving. You want me to be a leader? You've gifted me for leadership? Then I will be a leader. But the thing is, is we've got to cooperate. Interaction requires, requires two parties coming together. It's a divine collision. And so this morning, I want to invite anybody that wants to to come. I don't know that we're going to lay hands on you or do impartation, but I do know this. If the cry of your heart is, Lord, I want all that you have for me, he's not going to leave you as an orphan. He's going to meet you in the point of that need. Come now. Lead us in singing, worship team.